0: Yes, I am convinced by scripture and by plain reason, and not by popes and councils who have so often contradicted themselves, my conscience is captive to the word of God. To go against conscience is neither right nor safe. I cannot and I will not recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. That was a scene from uh a, Actually, it was uh, done quite well, uh, looking at the life of Martin Luther. It's simply called Luther. Uh, It's a little harder to find nowadays, but actually, Rachel has a copy. Uh, uh, Apparently, it isn't as hard to find as I thought. I just had to ask people in my own congregation. Um, But it's actually, if you you want to get uh, a capture of what started this kind of whole Reformation, at least... What was the spark that really caused it to become a movement? Because the reality was the Reformation had started before Luther. Luther was just kind of the match that lit and was a catalyst to start this whole thing that became a movement that became much bigger than Luther or any one of the different reformers. It was 500 years ago this Tuesday. 500 years, that's a long time, isn't it? Anybody celebrating their 500th birthday? We just celebrated a five-year-old's birthday yesterday, my five-year-old. So if I look a little hungover, it's, a, it's the five-year-old birthday party hungover kind of look. But 500 years ago, this upstart monk named Martin Luther challenged the powers of his day by nailing his 95 theses to the door of Wittenberg Chapel. It's German words, so that's why it's not actually Wittenberg, it's Wittenberg. They don't do W sounds in German. So Wittenberg, Germany. And these 95 theses were his points of contention with the teachings of the church of his day. He went through and looked at all the teachings and traditions and said, these 95, I mean there were more, I'm sure, but he said, these 95 are the ones where I really have a point, and he would cite in Scripture where he felt they were going against Scripture itself. That was the bulletin board of their day, the church door. And so that caused quite an uproar. And that was on October 31st, in 1517, which is now credited as the time of the start of what we know as the Protestant Reformation. As I mentioned, it was a movement that kind of began with Luther, but his actions served as a catalyst that started something much bigger and spread like wildfire throughout all of Europe. Let's be clear. This was not meant to be an anti-Catholic movement, as some people tend to think it is. That's not what it was meant to be. Many of the greatest reformers, from Luther to Calvin, Knox, Melanchthon, Zwingli, Wycliffe, those names that you had trouble saying on the screen, those individuals were not trying to start a new church or a new denomination as we tend to do so often. They were trying to reform the church they were already in. In their mind, there was one church, the one holy church of Christ, and they were trying to bring that church, everybody with them, to say, no, look, we're, we need to return to Scripture. We need to go back. That's why the re is there. Reform means that you're reestablishing. You're not creating something new. You're reestablishing something that was already there. They were trying to bring people back to the Word of God just as we heard the actor playing Luther say in that clip he's saying they were asking him to recant he's standing before the council and his life was really on the line and he said look i i, I can't i have to stand on the word of God i am held captive by the word of God so we commemorate this place in history not to glorify these heroes because as i've seen Many articles going out this week, you know, people saying, well, can you really trust what Luther says because of what he said about Jews? Or can you really trust what Calvin said because, you know, he was really mean-spirited and all these things. You're like, look, these are, these are broken people. Nobody was perfect. Nobody in our history is perfect. Only one person is perfect in history, and that's Jesus. And so we're not really celebrating them as heroes, though it was their boldness that led this movement. We can celebrate that boldness. But really, this whole movement, this whole reformation is about Jesus. It's about bringing people back to Jesus. It's about removing the obstacles that we place there. Not God. Between us and God, us and the church, the bride of Christ. That's what this movement is about. But to acknowledge this, the timeless, unchanging truth of the gospel that Christ redeems, still restores, and is still reforming all his creation. Brothers and sisters, it's upon this truth that we all stand. But before I go any further, let's return to God in prayer. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for this opportunity we have to worship in your name. And we thank you for the firm foundation of your word that we can stand. And we pray that as we continue in our worship, as we look at your words, and as we look at this spirit-led movement of you That you would guide us and that you would help us to see how you are still at work in our world today. That you would still speak to us. Lord, silence any voice in us but your own. And Lord, I pray that as my words stray from yours, may they fall away and quickly be forgotten. But may your word, your truth, and your promise remain upon our hearts forevermore. In Jesus' name we pray. And all the saints said, Amen. So I start with this question. Why do you think it would be important for us to commemorate a movement that started 500 years ago today? Why do you think it would be important? I mean, that was 500 years ago. Should we even still be talking about it? Or have we moved on just like the new iPhone has moved on from the previous one? Why do you think it's so important for us to commemorate? Anybody? So we don't go back. If you don't learn from the past, you're destined to repeat it. Wow, yep. And we've seen that, haven't we? We tend to repeat history time and time again. Anybody else? Why do you think it's important? To have overcome what was going on in the world at the time through the Catholic Church is really a wonderful thing. Mm. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Even the Catholic Church itself has changed over the years. So, I mean, that's something that I think it's important for us to note, that when we're talking about this Reformation uh, Reformation, Reformation movement, goodness, I'm getting all tongue-tied, too much sugar yesterday. Uh, this Reformation movement, you know, even the Catholic Church they we were talking about in that day is not the same church of today. I mean, sure, we have our, our differences from our Catholic brothers and sisters, but they're quite different from their... From their ancestors in the past. You mind getting that door for me, Tyler? Closing. Anybody else? Why do you think it's important? So there aren't any more big mistakes like in the past. That's right. Because how do we learn from our mistakes if we don't even acknowledge our mistakes and where we come from? It's important to know where we come from, isn't it? I mean, isn't it? Important to, to, to know where you as a family come from, to know a little bit of history, whatever that looks like. What You're a product of your past. You're a product of your upbringing. For better or for worse, you're a product of it. And understanding, at least remembering it, helps bring understanding. We can learn, and we are a product of the Reformation. We would not be a church today if it were not for the Reformation. We wouldn't be here. We'd be somewhere else. We are a product. You know, it really kind of started with Luther, who was really kind of a bull. He was known as a bull. He was a bull-headed man. But it took that kind of personality to kind of spark this movement. But people ran with it. I mean, we we come from a Presbyterian tradition. That Luther kind of started it. the, The Calvinists like to joke that, you know, Luther started it. Calvin perfected it. And so you have Jean Calvin, who was this French guy that, frankly, I'd probably rather hang out with Luther at the bar than Calvin, because he seemed pretty mean and strict. But an intelligent guy who led the Reformation even further through Europe, and he had to run from France to Geneva, Switzerland, and that's where he did most of his writing, and he's written, I mean, volumes and volumes. I mean, there's not many people who've written more than Calvin. I think he's probably still writing in his grave today. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, the man just kept writing, but it was all driven by his passion that we have to go back to Scripture. We need to stop just doing the things we've always done because they may not be right. A mistake done many times doesn't make it right. And so he's saying, look, we're we're using we're using the wrong things. And then this man by the name of John Knox, if I had a really good Scottish accent, I would say his name like that. But John Knox came over from Scotland, studied with Calvin, and took it back to Scotland. And that's actually where the Presbyterian heritage comes from. Maybe I should wear a kilt next Sunday. What do you think? I don't own one. I need, I, need, I need to get a kilt. But actually, he took the teachings of Calvin, and then he institutionalized it. And that's where even the name Presbyterian came from, because he believed in a system of what he called presbyteries, regional churches. That It's a connectional church with regional people, regional leadership, Not one in leader there. He was very strict on that, that he didn't like the idea of there being bishops, one person in power, that there would be groups of people. And so that those presbyteries, how you even get the name Presbyterian. So that little Presbyterian history there. But that has led on to many, many other beliefs. I mean, you later had John Wesley, who the Methodist movement came from. All of these roots leading. All of these people shaped by their understanding of God, faith, and scripture. And you know what? The Reformation also sparked uh, in us the ability to be able to read Scripture itself. How many of you own a Bible? Everyone should raise your hand because you could get one on your phone. You could look at them on the Internet, right? I mean, Bible is right then and there. Reformation was a big part of even getting the Word out to the people so that you read it for yourself. Because one of the, the hard things at the time of Luther was that many people were illiterate. And so everything was being transferred to them from the clergy, from the priests. Well, I'm, for one, very grateful that you can fact check me. If I say something, go, I don't know about that, Patrick, I could go look it up. Tell me if I'm wrong. I'm not right all the time. Kate will be the first to tell you that. I'm not right all the time. But you can read the Bible on your own. You can study it for yourself. You can come to know this living word of God all on your own. And it's written in, I don't even know how many languages now. They're constantly translating the Bible into new languages. That was unheard of. If you didn't know Latin, you were up the creek. But now you can read it in your own language. In fact, in English, we have all these different English translations. There's not even one. You can read it in all different, you can compare translations and see, okay, well, this person's saying this, this person's saying that. That can be real fascinating when you're doing your own Bible study. All of this. Because of this upstart movement that became much more. I think that's part of why we remember this. As I think of the Reformation, back in seminary I heard this phrase that kind of stuck with me. I don't know if maybe you've heard it, but uh, the phrase that was told to me early on was, once once reformed, always reforming. Has anybody ever heard that? We're once reformed, always reforming. And so it was, the, it was kind of this battle cry that, you know, we were once reformed back in, back in history, but we're still reforming. So we're still figuring things out. We're still figuring things out. And, you know, as it, surface value is like, okay, that's I, I can get behind that. But what was interesting as I looked back into that phrase, I realized that this once reformed, always reforming was actually a paraphrase of a bigger quote that I think actually is more important than what we're saying, because this was used to justify a lot of things of, oh, we, we can change this because, you know, culture's changed, we're, so we're, we're going to change it this way. W- w- wait a second. The full quote actually comes from a Dutch reformer in 1674. There was kind of a second reformation, so to speak, and and he said the church is reformed and always in need of being reformed according to the word of God. See the difference there a little bit? once reformed, always reforming, this is a little different. And I think this, even though these were not the words of Luther or Calvin or many of the other reformers, I think it actually characterizes what they were trying to do in the first place. They didn't believe they necessarily had it all figured out, but they did believe that they were coming back to the truth. And so I'd like to look at this phrase for our time together And see what it might mean for us. So this was written in a devotional uh, by Jodicus van Ludenstein. That's a fun name to say. Who was an important figure in the Dutch Second Reformation. And so let's start by looking at the first part. The church is reformed. What do you think was the most radical and life-changing teaching That was brought about by the Reformation. Anybody? What do you think was the most radical? What do you think Henry? The Lutheran way of teaching? Spoken like a true Lutheran. Yeah. Putting the scripture in people's hands. In their language. It's pretty radical. Anybody else want to venture a guess? Or a thought? You know what I think was one of the most radical? The Reformation brought up this idea that it's all about God's movement before ours. See, the church at the time was teaching that, yeah, yeah, it's, it's by faith that you're saved, but it's by faith and works. And you know how Luther came to his crisis of conscience that even led him to be so bold to stand before the church that was his employer? and his livelihood, and could kill him, it was this idea that he would go home every evening. He'd go out and do as many good deeds as he could to try to make up for all the bad that he was doing, and he would get home and realize that he didn't do enough. So the next day he'd go out and try to do more, and then he'd come back and realize he hadn't done enough. He was still a miserable sinner. And he would just kept living his existence, trying to justify himself before God in this endless cycle. Have you ever tried to be perfect at something and realize you just can't get there? That's the life of a perfectionist right there, that you get home and you're like, I just couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. But that was that was Luther. He was coming home, I mean, beating himself, prostrating himself before God. God, I just can't do enough. And then what changed him when is when he Finally, and the video actually earlier said that he hated the God of the Bible. He felt this was a vengeful, who would be a good God that would make me live this kind of existence? Until he actually started reading scripture and studying it for himself, he realized that that God he had in his mind that he hated so much was not the God of the Bible at all. Do we ever do that? Do we have a view of God that's here that's so different From what scripture actually tells us. So the most radical. Life changing teaching. I believe that came from the reformation. Was this idea of grace. That really wasn't talked about much at that time. It was faith and works. But it's grace. It's that God moves. Before you even have the opportunity. To think about moving. God does the heavy lifting. And yes, faith alone saves. Faith alone saves. For we are saved by grace. You have been saved through faith. And this, not of your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. It's Paul in Ephesians. So really, I think this word reformed that we're looking at should really be a capital R, Reformed. We are once Reformed because really we're looking back at this historic faith because again the Reformation was about returning. It wasn't starting something new. It was returning to Scripture and so they would write all these different creeds to say this is what we believe Scripture is teaching us because it's not always clear when we read Scripture together, is it? There's some confusing things in Scripture. So they said, we're going we're gonna to look. We're going to pray over this. We're going to talk about this. We're going to debate it. And we're going to figure out what is Scripture really saying. And we believe this is what Scripture is telling us. So what does all of this mean for us? I think as we look at this once reformed first part. Have you allowed Jesus to redeem the? your life because this whole start of the movement was again it wasn't about the people it was about a God who is moving on our behalf have you seen that God reaching out for you? do you see the God of Scripture who loves and adores you and wants the best for you who doesn't want to see you floundering or, walking around hopeless, doesn't want to see you hurt. Do you have that God in your mind? And have you given your life to that God? Are you committed to the change that comes with knowing that kind of loving God? So the church is reformed, but it's also always in need of being reformed. Many people take this phrase to mean that we are always changing and use it to justify certain appropriation of changing culture. I mean, we, we've, we've seen this, and we, and we have to wrestle with this. As culture drastically changes around us, how do we change what we do to contextualize the gospel? But not everything we do to change is for the gospel, is it? So we use it to say, well, you know, the church is just changing. But you know what? The timeless truths of the gospel don't change. How we contextualize that and share that with others can change. But the verb here in this phrase, the always being reformed, is actually a passive word. As in, it's always being reformed not by us, but by the Spirit of God. Because that's a little different when we're saying that this church is always kind of changing and growing. And if you want to use the word maturing and evolving, so to speak. But it's not by our doing. It's by the Spirit working in us. The Spirit bringing about new understandings. So it's still God's movement in us. It's not because culture is always changing and we need to be up with the times. But because we are always in need of being reoriented toward the word of god and where it stands the church can never stand still it must always be a listening church what does it mean to be a listening church i mean because perhaps like me you've heard church talking at you a lot you hear me talking at you a lot what does it mean to be a listening church What does it mean to listen to the needs of our community? To listen to each other? Who else here believes that we actually can move eons ahead as a society if we'd actually just listen to each other? How many people are listening to each other today? Okay, not many. Politicians aren't listening to each other on either side. Yelling, talking at each other. Religious leaders yelling, talking at each other. People on Facebook yelling at each other, not listening. I mean, gosh. You can get absorbed in the Facebook feed sometimes as people argue and you go, man, you're not, you're not even listening to each other. Everyone's just preparing their next attack. Are we guilty of that as a church? In Romans ten seventeen, so faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Note that the change that comes from hearing does not come from our changing thoughts on matters alone, but through the work and the Holy Spirit and the clear teaching of Jesus, God's holy word. What do you think it means to be a listening church? How does that change our posture? What do you think? To listen to God? Anybody else? What do you think it means to be a listening church? close Close our mouths and open our ears. Hearing people's stories. Don't often we we charge in with our agendas. We say, I mean, even we as a church, we 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 have good intentions. We charge in and going, you know, we want these people to know Jesus. So we're just gonna we're gonna bulldoze in. We're gonna say, Do you know Jesus, Tyler? Do you know Jesus? You need to know Jesus. He's gonna change your life. Do you know Jesus? Uh, don't don't even answer me. Do you know Jesus because he loves you? So much? I mean, that's kind of what we do, isn't it? And do you think someone's gonna actually hear? The love of Jesus in that. Maybe sometimes we need to shut up first. And we need to listen. Even when we come out, we have good intentions as a church of what we might do. You know, we have this beautiful vision of seeing our community changed by the hope and healing of Jesus. But what does it mean to be a listening church instead of, All right, We're just going to go out, we're going to bring the hope, we're going to bring the healing, let's do it for Jesus, come on will we actually make a good impact? Or do we first need to listen, where is the hopelessness? Where is the hurt? And then maybe, what has God gifted us with to bring hope to those hopeless, to bring healing to those that are hurt? It means listening. It means being humble, that maybe you don't have all the answers. Maybe you don't know and if you don't know friends you're in a good place cuz we have a lot of people who don't know here you're looking at somebody who doesn't know everything and thankfully i've even seen that we as a church there have been times that we've done major course corrections cuz we've said you know what this actually isn't where god is leading us and we listen and we hear i mean that's even where our vision came from of god saying no actually this is this is what i want you to do not this i you mean know, that's that's great but this is what I've called you to do. So are we humble enough to listen? Hear the need? Do you approach God and others with humility? Do you stand ready to be corrected? We are always in need of being reformed. But then we shouldn't miss this last part. Perhaps it's the most important part, and that's what struck me as being missing from the truncated version that I heard so often in seminary. The once reformed, always reforming. It failed to mention the word of God. Wouldn't it be important that if God is the creator of everything and knows how everything is knit together, that it be his word that we base any change on? Don't we need a solid foundation, a solid ground on which to stand if we're going to make any sort of changes? That's why I love some of the the confessions and the creeds from our past. Help give us a clearer sense of, you know, what does Scripture actually say? What does our faith say? Do we even have a common ground? I mean, one of the great confessions is the Westminster Confession. And it has a list of questions and answers of faith. And so if you want to begin to kind of understand your faith, you can read through the questions. The first one is actually interesting. What is the chief end of man? And when they say man, this is an old creed, they, uh, they mean all of us. They're not just talking about the men in the room. We're talking about the women too. This is the inclusive mankind. So what is the chief end of humanity? And their answer is this. Man's chief end is to glorify God And enjoy Him forever. Isn't that a beautiful answer? Perhaps it doesn't have some of the stuff you would include in your definition. But at the end of the day, that's what matters. God wants us to enjoy Him and to glorify Him. That's it. That's our chief end. Everything else is built upon that. And the second question is this, is what rule hath God given to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him? Okay, a good follow-up question. Their answer is this, the word of God, which is contained in the scriptures of the Old and New Testaments, is the only rule to direct us how we may glorify and enjoy him. This goes back when we did our uh, series on the five solas, sola scriptura, scripture alone is the basis in our rule. Even these creeds, as great as they are, mm -mm, they're subservient to Scripture. Scripture is the authoritative word. And the third and final question that we're going to look at today is, what do the Scriptures principally teach? And the answer is this. The Scriptures principally teach what man is to believe concerning God and what duty God requires of man. That's it. Scripture is the way we can know God. We aren't blessed like the disciples to be able to walk with Jesus, follow him around. And perhaps that's best because then we would be the ones written of in Scripture. They're going, man, why didn't he realize that? When Jesus was teaching him this, why, did, why didn't Rachel get it? I would probably be the Peter character. of Like, gosh, man, he is failing boldly but Scripture is the way we can know God. The Holy Scriptures. We can can walk with Jesus through the pages of Scripture each and every day, each and every moment. We get saints like Paul teaching us, this is what we should believe concerning this. We get to look at the book of Acts and see how the earliest church even began. We get to see it all as we read Scripture For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. So your final action in question is this. Are you a student of Scripture? Are you studying it? Are you reading it? If we want to know God, are we reading about God? Are we learning about God? And I can tell you this, Scripture is not easily studied alone. It's something meant to be studied together. I know a the, the few guys, we get together on Tuesday mornings, and oftentimes we bring out insights, talk to each other. You know, The thing I love about it is that I don't always lead as the pastor. We all take turns. And you know, it's great because I'm not necessarily any more qualified than the other guys at the table because we all bring different insights from our life. And I know that most mornings I leave with a different understanding of what we study than when I got there. And it can impact the rest of your day. You are redeemed and restored and reformed. Because at the heart of this reformation is the gospel story that God redeems you. God takes the brokenness within us. God restores that and God reforms you into a new creation. So really this reformation movement of 500 years ago really is older than that. It's much older than that. It goes back to the very beginning. It goes back to a God who saw his beautiful creation broken and has been working ever since to reclaim it and restore it to its beauty that he created it in, to reform us in his image. We now have the opportunity to join our voices together.